worship together. Let me just remind you uh, to always check your bulletin. There's lots of great information in the bulletin. Uh, check out the tables in the mall. Stop by those tables before you go, and there will be people there that you can talk to and get more information. Our website is a great uh, resource for upcoming events as well. And then uh, next weekend, we have a great celebration. Uh, we are going to have our Cowboy Weekend next weekend, all right? So bring your, your boots and your Wranglers. We're going to have two kinds of music, country and western. We're just going to have a good time, okay? We'll have spittoons at the end of each chair. So, no, I'm just kidding. We won't do that. But I hope that you'll plan on coming. You can ride your horse and park it in the North Lawn if you need to, and uh, we'll just celebrate with uh, our cowboy theme that weekend, all right? Well, I am uh, very privileged to be able to talk to you tonight as we continue the series that we've been in on our weekends. I... Uh, when I was first a youth pastor, almost 25 years ago, so when I uh, kind of ventured out and started uh, ministry as a full-time vocation, and I started as a youth pastor at a church in Colorado Springs, and for some reason, it wasn't even really our strategy, but somehow God just opened the doors for us to begin to build relationships with some of the teenagers in that city that were involved in gangs. And again, it wasn't this grand strategy. We had just prayed a lot that God would help us touch the city, and he opened doors to build these relationships. And some of these kids started coming to our youth ministry at our church. And, and things got really interesting when that began to happen. You can imagine. There was more than once that my wife Joy or myself were standing between two gang members in the foyer of our church trying to talk them down from throwing blows or maybe you know, knives or whatever it might be, multiple times. There were times when our youth service was on Wednesday nights that there would be a rival gang that would drive their cars around the parking lot of our church waiting for us to dismiss so that there could be this big fight and we'd have to call the police and thank God for the police officers who kind of patrolled our youth service. And it was this, it was this crazy time for us. There, uh, you know, we had in our youth group kids who were, who were raised like in Leave it to Beaver families. How many of you don't even know what Leave it to Beaver means? You're thinking, what, you had a zoo at your church? Okay, some of you know what Leave it to Beaver means. I mean, they were very sheltered, um, you know, not, uh, not exposed to very much out in the world, sitting next to kids who literally probably had a gun in the pocket of their baggy shorts. And, and they're sitting together in this youth group, and I've got parents saying, I don't think it's kid safe for my kids to go to church anymore, and I'm thinking, it's probably not. And, but, but I don't know what to do. And so it was exciting, and it was stressful, and it was chaotic, and, and it taught me a lesson. Be careful what you pray for and ask God for, because he just might say yes and start opening doors, and it's going to mess up your life. And I don't know about you, but I, I pray every day that God just continues to mess up Timberline by bringing people who need to encounter Jesus. And, and that, that's what was happening. And I'll never forget this one evening. It was before a Sunday evening service, and I was standing in the back of our auditorium there in Colorado Springs, and an usher locked eyes on me from across the auditorium, and I could tell he had that look on his face. He was ticked. He had an agenda, he made a beeline for me, and he wanted to talk to me, and I'm thinking, oh no, what has happened? There's no telling what, what some of these kids may have done, and, and I'm thinking, what the worst case scenario, and he walks up to me, and, and uh, he takes out the finger, well, not the finger, but <laughs> a finger, 
And he points it at me and he says to me, he says, I have a question for you. What do you think about these kids wearing hats in the sanctuary? And I knew there was only one answer that was going to be acceptable to him. And so I said to him, well, let me ask you a question. Would you rather have them in church hearing about Jesus with a hat on or in the parking lot stealing your car? Because if I ask them to leave, there's a good chance they're leaving in your car. That's not the answer that he had hoped for. But, but here's the point. This guy was a good guy. He wasn't a mean guy. He was a good guy. It's, he grew up with a tradition that says you don't wear a hat indoors. Anywhere indoors, it's disrespectful, especially in church. I grew up with that same tradition. But what happened was he had missed God's heart because that tradition had become so big to him. And that's kind of what I want to talk to you about a little bit. Last weekend, Pastor Dick did a phenomenal job on on talking to us. I absolutely love the illustration he gave us about water and Coke. Didn't you love that? I mean, it was just such a great picture. Amen. It was great. He's not here to hear that, but I'll tell him you clapped when I said that, okay? Pray for him. He's actually in Washington, D.C. this weekend. But um, if you weren't here, the illustration, to make it really quick, was that water is good for you. You should drink a lot of it, and Coke is bad for you. If you drink a lot, it'll kill you. And the picture is of Jesus. If we start adding stuff to Jesus, we don't make him better. We actually dilute him, or or we might even make him toxic. And so Dick talked to us about the water. I'm going to talk to you about the Coke tonight. And it's just my assignment, it's what comes in Mark, okay? That's what we're going to talk about. And, and the Coke comes in the picture of Pharisees. And so if you have your Bible, turn to Mark chapter 7. That's where we are in our text as we move through the book of Mark. Mark chapter 7, verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along on the screen. Here's what it says. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were unclean. That is unwashed. Everybody said gross. Okay, verse 3. Now notice what Mark does. In the text, there's a parenthesis. So parenthetically, Mark is going to explain something to us as to why this is a big deal. Verse 3. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. All right, now Mark was a gospel that was written primarily to Gentiles. That's why he explains it, because Jews would have totally understood what he was talking about. But he explains it, and I'm thankful, because most of us, we we don't get that unless he gives us an explanation. So it's not that the Pharisees are really concerned about personal hygiene. All right, because we could agree with them on that, especially my wife. My wife thinks you should wear latex gloves 24 7. Um, unfortunately, she doesn't because it's embarrassing. Um, it's not just about hygiene. It's something bigger than that. There's something more going on in their minds. Their washing uh, is a ceremonial washing that in their minds makes them clean. Here's the picture. If they go into a marketplace or wherever they may go, if they touch something that's impure, considered to be spiritually impure, and then they touch food and that food goes in their mouth, the idea is that it's made them spiritually unclean. And so they go through this ritual of washing their hands, a ceremonial washing of their hands before they eat anything. Now, 
You have to understand that culture. At the end of the second century, there was a book that was compiled called the Mishnah. Okay, Mishnah means, it's a word that means to repeat, to learn, to teach. And, and basically what it is, is it was a compilation of all of the oral laws and traditions that had been passed down from Pharisaical times. And so they captured it all in this book called the Mishnah. The Mishnah says that tradition is a fence around the law. Okay? In other words, the intent of their traditions was to protect God's law and to help people keep the law, which sounds admirable, except they took it to some real unhealthy extremes and except for the fact that the purpose of the law, we learn, was to be a signpost pointing to Jesus and our need for a savior. Okay, so that's kind of the picture there. And they had some very interesting traditions. For example, one of the things that uh, was a tradition is that you were not allowed to look in the mirror on the Sabbath because you might see a gray hair and be tempted to pluck it out of your head, which would constitute work on the Sabbath, and you would break the Sabbath. How many of you would be tempted? Yeah, some of us, it would be work to pluck all the gray out of our hair. Here's another one. If you spit, it was okay to spit on the ground on the Sabbath. But be careful because if you scuff your spit with your sandal, it would be considered tilling the soil and, and therefore breaking the Sabbath. So they had all of these traditions that they had to follow. But the biggest concern in the Mishnah was around this idea of purity or cleanness. Okay? That's where it kind, it kind of centered. In fact... The book of Exodus tells us that priests, priests were to ceremonially wash their hands. But by 200 BC, all pious Jews were going through this ceremonial washing. By Jesus' day, it, it was a requirement for all Jews in order to be considered clean to go through this ceremonial washing. And the washing was more extensive if you had been in a place where you could have been more corrupted. And it wasn't only their hands. The Mishnah had 35 pages that dealt just with the way that you needed to clean things like cups and pitchers and kettles. So that's the backdrop for this conversation Jesus is having with the Pharisees. So some of these Pharisees, these teachers of the law, had come from Jerusalem. Most likely, they had been sent there to observe and report what Jesus was doing, trying to trap Jesus. They noticed that Jesus' disciples were not following this tradition of ceremonially washing their hands before they ate. So look at verse 5. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with unclean hands? He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. Wow. I mean, that's quite a response. Jesus doesn't even really answer their question right away. Instead, he quotes the Old Testament prophet Isaiah and calls them hypocrites, which is play actors. That's what that word means. People who honored God with their lips, but, but in actuality, their hearts were really far from God. And because their hearts weren't right, their worship, Jesus said, was in vain. 
Well, then he really ticked them off because he also said that their traditions were of men, not of God. See, they believed that their traditions were at least equal to the word of God, and some of them actually believed that their traditions were above the word of God. But Jesus says you're holding on to these traditions while you let go of the commands of God. So then Jesus gives them an example of how they do this. Okay, so keep following with me. Verse 9. And he said to them, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother. And anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. But you say that if a man says to his father or mother, whatever help you might otherwise have received from me is Corban, which is what that means is a gift devoted to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and you do many things like this. So in a nutshell, what they were doing is they were ignoring a direct command from God to honor their father and mother, which would include taking care of their father and mother, especially as they aged, as they had need, so that they could outwardly appear to be righteous by saying their property is really devoted to God. All right, and the Jews would have fully understood that part of honoring your father and mother was taking care of them as they had need, as they aged. It's kind of like someone who has figured out this loophole, a way to get around paying any tax whatsoever. They had kind of tried to find this loophole by saying that if you say all of your stuff is devoted to God, then you don't have to. In fact, you can't help your father and mother with those resources. And by doing so, they were completely ignoring a direct command that God had given them. And Jesus says, that, that's just one example. There's many things like that that you do. All right, so look at verse 14. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a man can make him unclean by going into him. Rather, it is what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull? Now, he doesn't, he doesn't mean boring. He means, are, are you still not understanding? Do you still not get it? Don't you see that nothing that enters a man from the outside can make him unclean? For it doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach and then out of his body. This is like just a little bit of bathroom humor that Jesus is using here. He's saying, come on. This, this, is, this is like biology here. This is, it goes in your stomach out. How can it make you spiritually unclean? In saying this, here's another parenthetical statement. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. All right? Now, you have to understand. We don't have time to unpack it tonight. But you have to understand that this was huge. It was huge in Jesus' day to actually say this. To, to articulate that all foods would be clean. It is a major, a major upsetting statement that Jesus would make in the eyes of these Pharisees. So verse 20, he went on. What comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. For from within, out of men's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and make a man unclean. So what do we do with this? Most of us, I would guess today, 
do not have a major problem with ceremonial washings. Any of you really excited that we were going to talk about ceremonially washing your hands? I'm not talking about personal hygiene. Some of you would love a sermon. My wife will preach that next week, okay? That really, that really doesn't, we, it's not hugely relevant to us, this idea of ceremonial washing. But the temptation for us would be to say, not a problem for me, check this one off the list, let's move on. Or better yet, why don't you just close in prayer so we can go to dinner, okay? How many of you know I'm not going to do that? Okay, yeah. See, there's something deeper at work here. There's something bigger happening. Jesus is announcing that his way, and, and remember what we've been talking about all these weeks prior. We've been seeing all kinds of times where Jesus heals people, where Jesus sets the captive free that's been bound by evil spirits. We've seen him eating with sinners. All of these things that Jesus is doing, rolling back the kingdom of darkness, is the way of the kingdom. That's what Jesus is announcing. This is the way of the kingdom of God, and the Pharisees' way is the wrong way. That's what Jesus is announcing here. And he's telling us that, that it's possible For us to honor God with our lips while our hearts may be far from him. That's what he said in verse 6. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. I don't know about you, but that is a scary thought to me. That it's possible for me to reach a place where I'm honoring him with my lips, but my heart has really drifted far away from him. Jesus was always bringing it back to the heart. If you read about how he talked, how he interacted, especially with Pharisees, he was always bringing it back to the heart, not because our behavior doesn't matter, but the scriptures that dealt with things like washing, the scriptures that dealt with external things were pointing towards a bigger truth towards what Jesus would fulfill in washing us and making us clean, what only Jesus could do standing before God. It was pointing to a bigger problem, and that problem was a heart problem. And that's what Jesus was speaking to. I don't think the Pharisees set out to have hearts that were far from God. In fact, I think it was the opposite. But they had lost sight of his heart. And that is very relevant to each and every one of us in this room today. We've called this message uh, The Heart of the Matter. That's the title that we've given it. And the heart of the matter is the heart. It's the heart. And Jesus kept emphasizing the heart, that the heart is what mattered most because our behavior then flows out of the heart and what's actually there. What's inside will eventually come outside. He gave us a picture of things like this. The law says do not murder. Jesus said, love your enemies. Do you see the difference there? See, because I can outwardly conform to that command. I can grit my teeth and resist the temptation to murder someone who is my enemy. But to love that person, that's a completely different thing. I can't do that unless my heart is transformed. And there's only one who can transform my heart and actually make me love a person that is my enemy. That's what Jesus talked about. Our external conformity alone does not impress God. But when our hearts are genuinely transformed by the work of his spirit inside of us, then it begins to shape our lives, to conform our lives to the ways of his kingdom, to ways that honor him. The scripture we read earlier said that the Pharisees' worship was in vain. And ours is too. 
if all we offer God is the appearance of external conformity, but have hearts that are far from him. Look at one more passage. This is in the Gospel of Luke. And it's a story Jesus told that illustrates it well. Luke chapter 18 and verse 9. Notice who Jesus was talking to. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. Okay, that's who Jesus is talking to. Jesus tells this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee, religious leader, highly respected. The other, a tax collector, a sinner, despised. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. Well, listen to his prayer. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even this tax collector over here. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, the tax collector, rather than the other, the Pharisee, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. See, the Pharisee's praying was in vain, but the tax collector connected with God. Why is that? Because the tax collector's heart was right. God was not impressed with the Pharisee's ritual of prayer. He wasn't impressed with his fasting or his tithing. But he responded to the tax collector's humble heart. When we focus on external conformity and ignore the heart, we are destined to become hypocrites and our religious ritual will be in vain. Now I want to give you, tonight, how many of you are nervous because we haven't filled in blank number one? Okay, these are going to go fast, I promise, okay? I want to give you some things that can happen when we neglect the heart and we focus on an external conformity. They might even be warning signs. Look at your own life as we walk through these. Are there some warning signs that your heart has drifted, okay? The first thing that happens is we become proud. That's the first thing. We become proud. And you see that with the Pharisees. They were full of pride. They were proud of their accomplishments. I'm glad I'm not like other people. I fast and I pray and I give and I do all of these things. I thank God I'm not like them. See, their religious practice was often little more than an outward showing so that other people would praise them so that other people would acknowledge how spiritual they were, how holy they were. And they made, every, they made sure everyone knew when they were fasting. They made sure everyone knew when they were praying, when they were giving. They always wanted the best seats at banquets, the seats of honor. They loved titles. They loved to be called rabbi. They wanted everyone to know how spiritual they were. See, a subtle thing happens to us when we ignore the heart and become consumed with external conformity. What happens is it becomes more about us, our willpower, our self-discipline, and less about the transforming work of the Holy Spirit inside of us. And we become proud of our accomplishments. We become proud of how holy we are. This is one of the reasons that sometimes we focus on external things. It's because that's what people see. And the reality is that humanity craves the applause of humanity. 
We often crave the applause of people, but see, God sees the heart. You can't fake the heart because God's the one who sees it. You can fake the outside. I can make you think I'm pretty spiritual. I've grown up in church. Some of you are like me. I've been in church my whole life. I know how to say the right stuff. I know how to look the right part. But God knows my heart. He sees my motives. He sees everything inside of me. And he knows when my outside is inconsistent with my inside. The second thing that often happens is we become legalistic. We become proud, and then we become legalistic. See, the more we focus on external conformity, the more tempting it is to start living as though that's what earns God's favor and what makes, us li- makes him like us, is how well we can conform. And we climb right back on this treadmill of good works in hopes that we end each day with enough good stuff that God likes us more. And because it's all external stuff, then we start comparing ourselves with people around us. And we think, well, God surely must like me because I'm not as bad as him. I at least don't do that. Have you ever said that? Well, yeah, I have my problems, but I at least don't do that. See, we start comparing ourselves to other people, and we think we're okay because we're not as bad as the other guy. And then we begin to build our own fences by adding things that we perceive to make us holy. And often they are things that are more cultural than they are biblical, and we come up with a long list of do's and don'ts, this unwritten code of holiness, and we begin to impose that on everyone around us. And we take what might be personal convictions, I'm not talking about biblical absolutes, but things that are not necessarily spelled out for us in scripture, we start taking personal convictions and we impose them and make them law for everyone. All right, legalism looks for the speck in someone else's eye while there's a two by four in our own eye. That's what Jesus said about legalism. See, we become selective than with our legalism. And, and we, we are vocal and strong about sins that we don't struggle with and we conveniently ignore the ones that are struggles for us. That's what legalism does. All right, then legalism is gonna naturally lead to the next thing and that is we become judgmental. We begin judging people around us. That's what the Pharisees did. I mean, they, they made it their mission to judge everyone around them. Jesus said that they would heap heavy loads upon people's shoulders with their tradition. And in the midst of that culture, just imagine that, get that image in your mind, heavy loads on people's shoulders by all the tradition and trying to live up to it, trying to keep it. And in the midst of that world, Jesus comes and says, all you who are weak and heavy laden, come to me and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for my yoke is easy. Jesus said, and my burden is light. That's the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom. When we become consumed with the external and we ignore the heart, we become proud, then we start comparing with others and then we start condemning. And finally, we become deceived. And this is probably the worst of all, the scariest of all. We ignore the heart We focus on external conformity, and in doing so, we deceive ourselves into thinking that we're okay with God because we're checking off the list when our hearts may be far from him. The Pharisees thought that they were pursuing God. They were meticulous about their lists, but Jesus said their hearts had drifted far from God. 
See, our external conformity can actually hide the true condition of our heart if we're not careful. And rather than deal honestly and authentically with what's really going on inside of us, we hide behind the facade of religious conformity and religious activity. And Jesus will continually bring us back to the heart. That's why religious pride is the worst kind of pride. Because religious pride blinds you to the true condition of your heart. So, the heart is what matters most. If we are surrendering to the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, if we are allowing him to transform us at the core of our being, then it will affect our behavior. It will change the way we live, the way we love, the way we serve, the way we see the world. It will change everything. But if we are pretending by looking and acting the part while our heart is far from God, then it's really all in vain, Jesus said. Jesus doesn't let us hide behind religion. He goes right to the heart, the inner person, where our true selves reside. And he sees the motivations of our heart. He sees the thoughts of our mind. He sees the attitudes within us. And he sees what's real. And he sees what's merely an act. Now here's the amazing thing. In light of all that he sees, he loves us anyway. That's amazing to me. It's amazing to me that God can see everything, the stuff no one else sees, and he still loves me, but he loves me too much to let me stay that way. And so he goes to my heart so that he can transform my heart. And he calls us to stop pretending. He calls us to get real with him and to be real with ourselves and let him do the work in our heart that he wants to do. As we as we prepare our hearts to close, I just want to say that, that these, these thoughts that Jesus shared are why the mission of the church is so critical. Can I just tell you what's broken in our world? What's broken in America? What's broken in settings like what we've witnessed the last couple of days in Aurora cannot be fixed ultimately by politics, whoever is elected president, not that that doesn't matter and it's not important, it can't fix what's broken in our world. The great institutions of our society, education, the economy, technology, whatever you want to talk about, cannot fix what is fundamentally broken in the world in which we live. The only thing that can fix what's broken is the one who can change the human heart who can transform a cold, hard, black heart into something that is alive and full of light. Only Jesus can do that. It's what we witnessed today in in almost 80 people who stepped from darkness into light because Jesus transformed them, made them a new creation where old things passed away. This, This room is filled today with people who used to live a very different life, but because Jesus has transformed you, you have different values. You love people when you used to hate them. You've been set free from certain addictions in your life. Where you used to be mean, now you're kind and tenderhearted. Where you used to never cry, now you can't stop. Why? Because Jesus changes the human heart, and that is the hope of the world, and that hope has been entrusted to one entity, 
the church. And the church is not first this organization. It's definitely not the address. It's you and it's me. And that's why it matters so much. God forbid that we would fall into any kind of trap of legalism or judgmentalism, of letting our hearts move away from him, but that we would see the world as God sees the world. That we would pray, oh God, help us reach people who are broken. And if that messes up everything that's comfortable to us, so be it. Let's be a church that continues to follow God's heart for broken and desperate and hurting people. Our world needs that kind of place and that kind of church. And I think it's why I'm a part of this church because it's always been a part of who we are to say we gotta meet people where they are and we gotta love them where they are. And we gotta announce and proclaim the truth that Jesus loves them where they are and Jesus can change them. Not just cause them to conform. He can change their heart. Amen? Amen. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. God, I lift up to you people in this room, Lord, who through the course of this experience, and maybe it's been the, over the course of days and weeks and months, have come to realize that there is a heart drift. Their heart has drifted. And I don't know, God, maybe it has drifted towards this external conformity, this legalism, judgmentalism, pride. Maybe it's drifted towards towards a life that no one really knows about except for them, a double life. Whatever the case may be, I thank you, God, that your spirit pursues us and you're pursuing them in this moment, drawing them back, going right to the heart. And maybe they've got a lot of people fooled, maybe even their spouse, their kids, their parents, but not you because you see the heart and you're going to the heart and you're letting them know that you love them, but you love them enough that you're not gonna let them stay that way and you're drawing them back to a place of surrender. Lord, for some in this room, maybe for the very first time, the very first time, this is a moment of faith where they would turn from living for themselves and surrender to you and declare you as king and Lord over their lives. Trust you for the forgiveness of their sins, that they would come into relationship with the God who made them and who loves them God, I thank you for people who, who are taking that step of faith even tonight. Lord, we love you. Let us always be a church that, that will not allow traditions to keep us from your heart. It doesn't mean that all of our traditions are bad. Lord, thank you for the traditions in my own life. But may I never allow those things to become bigger than you and your mission in the world. May I always keep you first, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We love you, God. Thank you for holding on to us. Thank you, God, that you never let go, that you are big enough to keep us to yourself, to hold us. We thank you for that. May we go now in your grace, empowered by your spirit to love this world that you've called us to. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you would like prayer, we would love for you to come. There's a prayer team that would meet with you. If you gave your life to Jesus uh, tonight, we have a packet we'd love to put in your hands just to help you get started on that walk. Otherwise, God bless you as you go. Have a wonderful weekend.